0: The Craft Food Classroom is a comprehensive and in-depth five-part online, go-at-your-own-pace course that will provide everything needed to build a thriving food business. Each module includes a video, presentation, workbook, and quiz. This course teaches students exactly what they need to know to succeed in the craft food industry and avoid pitfalls and costly mistakes. Learn more at thecentral.kitchen/classroom. And you can use PODCAST21 at checkout for 10% off anytime. Again, that code is PODCAST21 for 10% off.
1: Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed, and you get three free months of Fiddle inventory operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode.
2: Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka.
1: Hello, this is Taylor Howe, the marketing manager at Fiddle. I'm super excited to be the guest host for this bonus episode of the physical product movement. Our guest today is John Shiroli, the founder and president of Armatura Company. John makes operations simple and scalable with his decades of experience in food and beverage. We get into all things operations on the podcast today, from the do's and don'ts of working with co-packers to the differences between brands that thrive and the brands that fail. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did.
2: John, thanks for taking the time to meet today. Excited to dig into some operations goodness. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Excellent. Um, We were talking a little bit beforehand. Um, I first heard about you or heard you speak, I guess, on the Startup CPG podcast. I just heard the podcast a couple months ago. You said that you recorded it back in April, but it was a phenomenal podcast. You shared a lot of great insights, so I'm hoping that we can... uh, you know get some lightning in a bottle again today during our conversation hopefully you can share some awesome tips with the group here
0: yeah i appreciate that happy you enjoyed it it's uh all it means is i've been been around for a long time it doesn't mean that i'm great at anything it just just seen a lot of stuff
2: yeah it's like uh what is um Woody allen's quote is 80% of success is just showing up so yep. it sounds like you've just been showing up for enough years that you've got a lot of wisdom to share which is awesome trying Awesome. Well, let's just start off, John. Tell us um, about yourself and how you got started in the CPG space.
0: Sure. So, m- my first stint in the CPG space was working for a candy company called Pez a long time ago, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. which which is it's hard for me to say that and not have someone smile on the other end of the conversation because it goes back to the childhood illness right away. Um, and it was just kind of an interesting space, you know. I, I'd never. I didn't study in college. I mean, in college, I studied business marketing, and here I took over a job at at a candy company purchasing stuff, and I had no idea what I was doing, to be candid. I had no idea what packaging was, what production was, what inventory was, and warehouses, but I love connecting dots, so it really didn't take too long. So I got into the space that way and then I, fortunately I grew that really, really fast, that company, in about three years. And then got my first step into the beverage industry. So I worked for Vitamin Water um, just prior to the acquisition by Coca-Cola. And it was a wild ride and I just fell in love with the space uh, on the young brands. And I just knew I always wanted to be in that space in some capacity again earlier in. Ironically, after that, I went to go work for PepsiCo, which is not that, but it's a sixty-five billion-dollar machine that for seven years paid me to learn. Is the way I talk about it. That's cool. And um, and then from there, kind of just got back into the small, small spaces. You start started with a you know, an eight million-dollar brand after leaving PepsiCo, and you know we turned that company around and rebuilt it from the ground up, um, and sold it to Vitacoco, and then other companies after that. And it's just been, it's been a lot of fun. And to c- talk how I got into what I'm doing now, it, a lot of it is because I don't know how to say no. So people <laughs> to ask me questions like, how do you do this thing? Or who can I contact for this idea or this Copac or, this copac? or whatever it is? And um, I started to, to, to help folks just casually, uh, not for pay, not for business, because I was working full time. Mm-hmm. And fast forward, it just became something that became very, very obvious to me that while the sales and marketing of a business is super exciting, and I have a marketing background from education, I should say anyway, and I'm married to a marketer who builds brands, um, you can have all the, you can have the sexiest marketing and sales happen in the world, but if you can't get product on the shelf and your unit economics are broken, it's not going to last long. And I I've been a part of many a handful of brands, whether I worked for them or advised them that were amazing brands, amazing products. And when they always failed, when, when the wheels fell off the bus, it wasn't because they didn't have placement. It wasn't for any other reason other than unit economics and operations. And I just saw that as an opportunity. And it's not something that, it's not something that is, it's hard. It's not hard if you know it, but if you don't know it, sometimes it can be challenging to wrap your mind around it. And mm-hmm. <laughs> to see around the corner of what what are these early decisions that i'm making now how will that impact me 12 to 18 months from now yeah Um, Yeah. you know so i've taken those battle scars and said well let's just build a company around that and help brands to do that so they can scale their business so we can provide the framework for their business to grow
2: okay cool Cool. man there's a lot that you said there that i want to follow up on first of all the comment that you made about pez um, when you said that, when you share that with someone, they they instantly start smiling. You said that as I was smiling because it's totally true. Like you say the word Pez, and you instantly just start thinking about the first dispensers you had when you're when you're a kid, and the ones that maybe you held onto that you've got like in some random box that you take with you from house to house, move to move because it has sentimental value. So that's cool that you got your start at a company that has such strong has like such a strong brand and has such strong ties with our lives. So that's really, that's really cool. Um, You mentioned something about, and I, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but you said that one of the things or one of the big reasons that you see brands fail is because their unit economics and kind of the operation side can't keep up with the demand that's generated by the marketing. Right. And that's something that we talk about a lot at Fiddle. It's something that um, I think brands talk about behind the scenes I feel like the operations and the sales stuff and scaling and growing like that um, is feels like it might be like a little sexier, and that's why people talk about it more. But the operation stuff, like you said, is the undergirding part of it that kind of you know enables the rest of it to grow. Sure. I also feel like it's kind of a cart before the horse question, right? Like sometimes brands are it's all that they can do to um, to just focus on getting product out the door today, and they don't want to like bring in more inventory or worry about things if they're not going to, if they can't actually sell it yet. And so Mm -hmm. what do you typically tell a brand kind of that's in that situation, or or I guess maybe taking a couple steps back, like um, how do they kind of balance that? How do they strike a balance between the marketing stuff and then knowing when they do need to start making improvements or changes to the operations, if that makes sense, and kind of when to do it?
0: Yeah, for sure. I would say that That I don't think there's any company that's or any brand that starts up that can't uh, do some good basics in in regards to housekeeping. And I'm not pushing fiddle, but I know what you guys do, right? So at at a minimum, like you should be really organized, just to know like where's my stuff, like how much stuff do I have, where is it, what is the value of it? Just just stay organized. So if you if you've got that, that's a great box to check. That means you, you you're not just doing things haphazardly because as you scale and grow, you need to stay organized with things. But I would say that, you know, some of the advice that that I've been given and I continue to give when, when brands are in those early stages is um, talk to me about your, your sales channel strategy. And I know that sounds strange coming from someone that works in operations, but it's it's really important because in my opinion, because You know, you can, it's really exciting to think that you can be a national brand, but it's really hard to be a national brand. Um, It's not just getting it into UNFI, you know, there is trade spend and marketing and field sales. And aside from the fact that you're talking tens of millions of dollars to do that, um, it's hard to build a supply chain around something that doesn't have the support on the front end uh, to pull it through so i I'll, I'll often say talk to me about your sales plan like what is your channel strategy what is your geographical strategy because then that will dictate a little bit around what does the operations need to support it today tomorrow 2 years from now mm-hmm. uh, so that's that's kind of where we start
2: okay that totally makes sense so you kind of start with what their future plans are and kind of what sales channels they're planning to go into and then that helps you know okay if you're going into X sales channel, then you, then you know that the operations needs to be up to a certain level. And if it's not, that's something you, you got to take care of and kind of get dialed in first before you ambitiously start to grow into more sales channels.
0: For sure. And when you're early in as well, you know, if you lay out all the, great, the greatest strategy in the world, it doesn't mean that you can execute it. What I mean by sure. that is, you know, a good example is uh, you know, we've, we've supported quite a few brands at launch during the pandemic and have done phenomenally well, but they, it's been extremely challenging to stand up their supply chain and operations in a way that is strategic because of the lack of supply of co-packers, materials, ingredients, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, what, so what I'm getting at is it's not uncommon to, be, to early in to make decisions on partners because they're the only ones available while strategically they may not be the right partners. But what's important to know is, and we give this advice all the time, don't, don't sign away your soul to that partner because they're your partner for now, not necessarily your partner for the future, um, but it's not uncommon. And you know you take steps. We've seen brands that that t- we have purposely put them into Packer A or Packer B, knowing that they're absolutely gonna outgrow them, but it's what was available. And it wasn't in the right place geographically, but it's what was available. so it, it's tough. It's tough. it's it's a bit of a balancing act. You know that it's rare that someone comes out of the gate, well funded, well staffed, has all the has all the channel strategy ironed out. All the distributors are waiting for it, where you can just lay out a roadmap. It's I mean, it's I worked for Coke and Pepsi. They barely can figure that out.
2: <laughs> Interesting, okay. So what you're saying is, Cut yourself some slack to the brands out there. Don't try to do it all perfectly. It's okay if you have some hiccups, if you have some mistakes and some missteps because even the biggest brands do. So take some comfort sure. in that. Yeah, sure. that totally sure. makes sense. Um, along those lines, there's a couple follow-ups that I want to ask to that. One would be, um, what do you feel like COVID has done? And you already mentioned, and obviously all of us kind of know how it's affecting this supply chain and that sort of thing but how do you think, I guess, from like a uh, maybe from a strategy standpoint or from a kind of a mindset, like how do you think brands need to approach their operations given
0: the restraints of COVID? Sure. Uh, Not that I'm happy that COVID came upon the earth, (laughs) but uh, a comment before I answer your question, it's probably the first time at least in my career that the term supply chain became a sexy word and it became a sexy <laughs> word when yeah. no one could get toilet paper. Right. <laughs> yeah. And nobody could get their, their essentials. Like, what do you mean you're out of soap? You know, it just doesn't register because as consumers, we just, we just buy it. Um, so kind of good for our business, I should say, but <laughs> terrible for the world. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it just exacerbates some of the things that, that I've been fortunate to be educated on through working for Coke and Pepsi and some of these brands is is making sure you've got alternative sources of supply of anything. Um, And even more so, try not to have, unless you have no other option, try not to have something from an ingredient point of view, from a packaging point of view that is so unique that there's only one place in the world to get it. Mm -hmm. Because that happens and that's okay. But when the world shuts down and you can't get a boat through the Suez Canal, you're out of business. Just it happens. So if you know it, if you can try to have you know secondary, tertiary backup suppliers for everything, great. Um, try not to be overly unique. That's a whole marketing discussion, which I'm happy to chat about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, that that'd be my recommendation, and it's. Um, and it's hard because as founders, working with lots of founders, whether I've worked for them or now working you know, as an outsourced team for them, um, they're brilliant. And I, I always wish them congratulations because they've created something from nothing that people want. Uh, that's the hard part. Like what we do is easy. There's only so many ways to run a business. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so it's hard to not be creative, is my point, when you're a founder, because that's how you started this thing, right?
2: For sure. Okay. So making sure that you've got backup suppliers, backup co-manufacturers that you can lean on if you need to, and then not over innovating, like not, like not making your product so special and so unique that there's no option for backup suppliers because there's only one place to get it. And you're basically your entire business hinges on that.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's a very absolutely. And that's very tactical for sure. Sure. The more strategic part of it, which is something that, um, myself and my team really pride ourselves on, and there's other people that are definitely very good at it, is, is relationship management. What I mean by that is foster strong relationships with all of your partners, whether you're contractually obligated with them or not. Because when the times are tough, if you don't have a good relationship with them, if you have a transactional relationship with them, they don't care about you. Mm-hmm. But not to say you need to wine and dine people, I don't mean that but there's, there's a way of, of maintaining a professional relationship with folks that they're happy to pick up your call when their phone shows your number versus crap, I, John Scirolli's calling and I don't really want to pick this up. <laughs> um, so there's something to be said about that. And that's, that's kind of an art you build or over th- through your career. Um, it's critically
2: important. Okay. What are some ways to do that during COVID time when maybe it's harder to meet in person? And obviously things are, or they were opening back up and maybe they're starting to close back down or we don't quite know what's going to happen. But you mentioned that you don't have to be like talking to them all the time and that sort of thing. But what are some um, ways that, you know, like your average brand could just maintain that consistent relationship with their partners?
0: I mean, it's just like the sales team on the other side. Like don't, don't just call someone when you need something. Right? Mm, it's okay. to sure. call, just, It's okay to text someone and say, how, how was your day? I know that sounds so ridiculous, <laughs> Yeah. But I, it's 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 so valuable. Like, so it, it's it's like when people are looking for a new job opportunity, it's like I have to update my LinkedIn to start to reach out. No, you should be doing that all the time mm. so that when it's time that you need something, everyone's excited and happy to be there for you. Not just I need something. Please help me. For and, sure. You know, that's, that's something that you, in my experience, you learn you sometimes learn the hard way. Sure.
2: Okay. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I want to go back to something that you said a few minutes ago. You you said something like uh that some brands sell their soul to their partner, to their co-packer, right? Yep. I want to dig into that a little bit more. Cause obviously in certain situations, like you said, you know, you you just you just don't have a lot of choices as far as who you choose to be your co-packer, who you choose to be your supplier because, you know, just whatever constraints yeah. are in I'm place, here. right? But what are some um kind of some red flags to look for um, that would that would indicate I'm about to sell my soul to this company and it's not going to be good for me a few years down the road.
0: You know what I mean? For sure. I, I appreciate, whilst well, I'll get into some specifics, but I appreciate why some brands sometimes do that because they don't have the capital. Um, mm. So you may say, hey, I'll, I'll give you half my company if you do this thing for us. Or I promise you that I will commit to X millionth widgets of production over the next two, three, four or five years Um, because I'm well-funded and I can afford to do that. Those are, those are tough calls. I mean, those are, those are things where I would say, you know, spend the time to take a look at your multi-year plan as best as it's laid out, right? And your cash and your cash burn and what you're expecting. And, and is it realistic to know that I'm going to reach a milestone where that's not going to hurt me? Um, if you, if you're doing, you know, one of these and saying, yep, we're going to get there. And (laughs) I know at scale, it's just going to work out. That's the kiss of death. Do the work to know that you're putting yourself at risk or not. Um, and hang on to as much equity as you can for as long as you can. If you don't need to give it away, don't give it away unless, unless it's a real strategic reason to do it. You know, if you're building your business and you're going to sign on the, the most amazing distributor that's perfect for your business and your channel. Maybe you give them some skin in the game because they're really going to explode your business. It's more strategic in nature, but if you're just giving it away because you don't have the cash, I feel for you. That's hard. That's <laughs> hard. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Tell
2: me what, you, what are some things, and you kind of already mentioned, um, some of the basics that brands need to be taken care of as far as making sure, and on the I guess taking a few steps back on the Startup CPG podcast, I think you called it inventory control and you use the analogy of the peanut butter and jelly. If you're selling peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you need to know how much peanut butter you have, how much jelly you have and how much bread you have and when it expires and how much it costs and all that stuff, right? Those are just like the very basics of managing your inventory, both your supplies and your finished goods and that sort of thing. What are, sure. things, um, what are some things? What are some things that you see brand? I guess beyond that, that you see brands are doing right when it comes to, in um, in inventory operations, and then some things you see them doing wrong. Feel free to kind of interchange that as they come to mind.
0: Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll echo some of the things from the from the other podcast. It's it's just knowing how much stuff you have and knowing, um, knowing what it takes to to build your thing. Right? So I won't use PB and J as the example of what we use a beverage, you know? It's, yeah. If you've got 10 ingredients and two bits of packaging and your bill of materials tells you that, you know you need all of these things to make a minimum or a quantity run. If you're missing one, you might as well be missing all of them, right? So ha- being able to, to understand just holistically and I know it sounds basic, but every time I go into a production I need to have this many things to make my finish good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see brands doing a pretty good job of that. What I see brands also doing a pretty good job of is even using some tools, whether it's Excel or uh, you know, we've seen great tools like Union Crate. Um, some of our brands use those, where it gives you some of the demand. And then you back that demand into, okay, from a supply chain procurement point of view, what is the, what's my uh, lead time on all my individual items? and what's my sales velocity on the demand side and, and marrying those together to know that, okay, when I dip below this quantity on my finished goods, it should trigger me in an Excel sheet. It could be, you know, it turns red, buy more of these things. Yeah, If it's, if it's an ERP, it's time to buy more of these things. But lot code traceability is also important too, because especially early in, and you mentioned it, um, you don't wanna lay up a lot of working capital in inventory. So it, it is a fine balance. So it's, I see, that's probably something I see brands doing well and not well. It's, it's, mm. it's challenging. And it's one of those things, if you don't know how to do it, you don't know how to do it. You just buy stuff. You know, <laughs> we, have, we have a brand now that I won't mention their name, but they're phenomenal. They're just getting off the ground where some, one of our amateur team members said, Hey, FYI, we just uncovered that these seven tons of stuff that they have expires in October and they're gonna go into production in October. Well, that's not gonna work. The manufacturer is gonna produce something in their plant when you send them materials that are expired. So it's like really like keeping track of your stuff, knowing as best as you can, what are your sales velocities and how does that tie into your lead time on your raw material inventory? um, is, is something that we see brands doing well and not well. Okay. Gotcha.
2: So it's kind of like both, it's kind of like two sides of the same coin. Like these are the things that they're doing well, but then sometimes they're not doing these things well. Or a better way to say it is get good at that thing. Get good at that thing. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned, um, and obviously I think this is the case for any business. Like when you first start out, you use spreadsheets for as many things as possible because they're simple, they're free for the most part. And, yeah. you know, um, easily manipulatable. If that's the right word. You can, you know, you, you, you can do what it, you can make them basically do whatever you want. You're only limited by your own knowledge as, as, like, as like how the, the spreadsheets work. So sure. I've got a couple questions about this, but my first one is, um, for someone like me, who is a very, who is, a um, is not very, um, is not very like savvy with spreadsheets, let's say, how do you are there like any templates out there like any like systems out there that you can use to create like a solid spreadsheet to start tracking all the like the different things that you mentioned
0: uh some some of the stuff i would say i haven't seen a basic template for just inventory i mean it's some of that stuff is as simple as you know columns of you know class packaging ingredients, you know, subclass, whatever it is, you know, what's the mm-hmm. unit of measure, and just kind of setting it up and thinking about it in a logical point of view, it, as far as like how you buy it. You know, How does the supplier, I almost think about it this way, because this is how I built it very early in my career, is you got to... Hey,
1: everyone. My name is Taylor Howe, and I'm the marketing manager here at Fiddle. I want to jump on real quick to tell you about an incredible free resource that we put together for CPG brands. It's called Fiddle Connect. It's a curated database of over 3,000 co-packers and suppliers. You'll get websites, phone numbers, locations, categories, and more, all in one place. It's a must-have for any CPG brand, especially in the food, beverage, or nutraceutical space. And again, it's 100% free. To get immediate access, just go to fiddle.io forward slash connect. We are constantly updating the database and we promise you're going to love it. It'll save you time and headaches by helping you get to suppliers and co-packers faster than ever. So again, just go to fiddle.io forward slash connect to get free access today.